Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and build their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. This is likely to be our final podcast of the year, uh, as we won't be having any during the holidays we always publish on Tuesdays and the next couple of Tuesdays are you know Christmas and New Year so we'll probably skip those uh, but I wanted to thank everyone for being listeners and for uh, all the feedback and comments that we've been getting um, we really appreciate all of it uh, and it's really helped to shape the the podcast as we've continued to sort of grow and, and change it over time uh, on today's show we uh, we want to talk about, I think, something that's been sitting in the back of my head for a while. Uh, one of the most important and, I think, most influential uh, academic works to, to impact Silicon Valley in many years was Clayton Christensen's The Innovator's Dilemma, uh, which began first as a Harvard Business Review article and then became a book. Uh, tied up in The Innovator's Dilemma is the concept of disruptive innovation. Now, I first came across uh, this concept when the original HBR article came out, which also happened to be conveniently when I was in business school, uh, and a professor that I was uh, working for at the time on a class all about disruptive innovation practically flipped out at how perfectly uh, the article encapsulated everything that we were talking about in that class. So uh, it was was kind of interesting, and I've obviously followed... uh, that work ever since. Uh, Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, the concept of disruptive innovation took Silicon Valley by storm. Now I say fortunately because there are a lot of really important concepts in the innovator's dilemma for understanding how innovation actually happens. And then I say unfortunately because many people pretend to have read or pretend to have understood the book when all they really picked up on was the phrase disruptive innovation without understanding what it really means. Uh, To them, Disruptive innovation might be summed up uh, in the informal Facebook motto of move fast and break things. Uh, That is, some incorrectly believe that disruptive innovation means breaking rules and doing whatever the hell you want in the name of innovation. Uh, For an example of this, uh, well, basically see all of Uber's history. Um, But that's not what is actually in the book uh, and is not the point that the book is making. Summarized uh, as briefly as I can, disruptive innovation is the process by which incumbent companies tend to completely miss the new thing, potentially taking down their entire business. Incumbents have their products and they have their markets and they tend to focus on serving that market by gradually improving their existing uh, products products and services incrementally. Uh, The concept of disruptive innovation is having a new entrant enter the space in what appears with what appears to be an inferior product or service, um, often at a much lower price point. The large incumbent doesn't pay much attention to it because the product is inferior, uh, so it's no threat to their customer customer base. But what happens is that the disruptive innovator improves rapidly or with different methods or or, uh, approaches such that before long it's able to meet the demand of many of the legacy industry's customers and still at a much lower price point or with a different business model entirely. 
the incumbent is generally uh, structurally unable to adapt and can collapse or just be left with sort of a dwindling legacy cash cow business. Uh, it's actually much easier to show all this with graphs and charts uh, than, but this is podcasting, so we not exactly a visual medium. Um, but you know, if you do some quick googling, you can can see this concept played out in, in really nice charts. Uh, people often debate about examples of truly disruptive innovation, but uh, one that I like to use is camera phones, for example. I think when mobile phones first added cameras, they were sort of widely mocked or panned. People pointed out that the quality of them sucked, which it absolutely did, and that there just didn't seem any, to be any reason at all to carry around a phone, uh, a camera on your phone all the time. Uh, the camera companies who made you know, everyday point-and-shoot cameras definitely joked about it at the time. But a few things happened, of course, which was the quality of camera phones got much, much better very, very quickly. And then people began to realize that were some, there were some really great advantages to camera phones, including always having it on you in a tiny package and also, importantly, having it connected to the network, which allowed you to quickly upload and share images and do a lot of other stuff as well. Uh, and then finally, a bunch of new services were created uh, to make the camera phones even more valuable. Um, and of course, so that put a, a real dent on traditional point-and-shoot camera uh, businesses. So I think a good example of disruptive innovation. Um, following the publication of The Innovator's Dilemma, a robust set of consultants sprung up uh, to try and tell companies how to recognize and prevent disruptive innovators from destroying their business. Uh, I believe that many of these were really selling a form of uh, consultant snake oil uh, as the very nature of truly disruptive innovation, at least in my mind, is that it's almost impossible to recognize until it's too late. Uh, but lately I've been wondering if at least some Silicon Valley companies are, have actually started to figure things out about the innovator's dilemma and seek to preempt the innovator's dilemma in particular. Um, Facebook is one that I'm most interested in in this regard because it's been incredibly aggressive in paying massive sums for competing social networks pretty early in their development. It bought Instagram, uh, one of those services that sprung up to help camera phone owners, uh, for a billion dollars, um, an amount that at the time took people by surprise, though in retrospect it seemed cheap. Um, and even more incredibly, it bought WhatsApp for an astounding $19 billion very early on in that application's existence. Uh, it desperately tried to buy up Snapchat uh, before then copying it feature for feature. Um, so these kinds of moves are not like what companies would have done, I think, in the past. But they make sense if you're Mark Zuckerberg and if you've internalized the innovator's dilemma and you want to bring any potential disruptive innovator in-house before it's too late. Um, so this idea has been bouncing around in my head a bit, so I wanted to discuss it with someone who might be able to help me work through whether or not uh, some companies have figured this out and what that means for the innovator's dilemma. And so uh, we have on, on the podcast after this very long intro, uh, James Allworth, uh, who has been on the podcast uh, before uh, and is an experienced podcaster in his own right uh, and is always a very thoughtful commentator on a variety of different topics related to innovation, especially the innovator's dilemma. And that's because among his many claims to fame, uh, he co-wrote a book with Clayton Christensen, the author of The Innovator's Dilemma, and that book was How to Measure Your Life. Uh, but James, welcome to the podcast. Mike, thank you for having <laughs> me. Thank you for inviting me back. It's really great to be here. Yeah, no, people really enjoyed the last time you were on, and I'm sure they will enjoy this as well. Um, and I should note for the listening audience that 
it did take James and I a little bit of time to get this podcast scheduled and recorded. And I had mentioned to him the topic um, months ago, and then I did not bring it up again. So he's coming at this a little bit blind. <laughs> no, it's all good. Actually, I do remember talking to you about it, and it's been it's been uh, uh, gestating in the back of my mind, like Excellent. percolating. So hopefully, we'll have a good talk about it. Sure. So I mean. W- do you think there's anything, first of all, do you think there's anything, well, let me take a step back from that. First of all, was my description of the innovator's dilemma fair? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that. So I thought it was, I thought it was an excellent description. I think there's one thing I would add for people who are okay. thinking about disruption and that is um, there needs to be in the disruptor, the company coming in at the low end with the quote unquote inferior product, there needs to be some kind of scalable advantage inherent in that business. Mm, okay. So, so it's not just low end competition. It needs to be, uh, something scalable that gives them an advantage. Now the place where they start is often at the low end of the market, though, even that in the digital economy, isn't necessarily, Uh, a surefire thing. So what I mean by a scalable advantage is, let's take hospitality, for example. Um, if, If Best Western wants to compete with the Four Seasons, Best Western has no inherent scalable advantage such that it moves up market and it, it is able to outperform the Four Seasons. It needs to invest in all the same uh, the, the, the the same locations, the luxury fit right. out, the concierge, whatever. And so it moves up market and it looks exactly like the Four Seasons with the Four Seasons cost structure and they can duke it out over brand and execution. And, and that's the nature of a capitalist society. That's good when you have competition, but it's not disruption there needs to be some kind of scalable advantage. And you think about Airbnb entering the market Mm -hmm. uh, and they're targeting people uh, who have property that's otherwise lying around idle. That gives them a cost advantage in terms of being able to offer people a place to stay because the people who are putting their, their rooms or houses up on Airbnb, their alternative is, well, I'm not making any money from this. So any money I get is great. So maybe I'll just rent out my room for $100. Airbnb doesn't have to pay the cost of that. And you're able to offer people accommodation. And it it has this scalable advantage. It doesn't own the it doesn't own the underlying uh, capital. Mm -hmm. It's the capital sitting around idle. So people are able to offer it for less than if they built it just for this purpose from a business perspective. So I think it's really important and to, to have that scalable advantage. In the instance of your, your cameras, I think that's another great example. The scalable advantage is that it used to be historically that a lot of the improvements in image quality needed to happen in hardware. And these camera phones have improved a lot of the image quality in software. So mm-hmm. it's all this post-processing. And then there, there are often other advantages that disruptors have as they move up market uh, as uh, because of the nature of the way they go to market. And so the instance of having the other services like Instagram, which is sharing photos or whatever, is often the reason why you take those photos. And it's that much easier than trying to do it on the back of a Canon or a Nikon and all the extra steps. So it's, it's much easier, but it's like, look for that scalable advantage when you're trying to understand disruption. It's a critical component of it. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a really, really good point. And, um, one that I think, yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense because otherwise it's not just like, yeah, you know, some cheap knockoff entering Mm. the market, right? That's, that's not the point, you know, and the the way, um, the way I often think about it is that it's, it's often, it's often the business model that is the real, Mm. um, 
the real disruptive part. That's not always true, um, but it seems to me at least frequently it is um, the business model and that the, the, the business model is so different that makes it two things. One, both scalable and two, so difficult for the incumbent player to, to you know, uh, not Im- well, maybe imitate or get into that market in I the mean, same way. Absolutely. It's not, I mean, people think it's just the technology. Your point mm-hmm. around it being the business model and the technology is spot on. Uh, let's take another example that's near and dear to my heart, self-driving cars. Like yeah. you think about autonomous vehicles, you you look at what players like Mercedes and BMW are doing. I, I, there's this, I, I love cars and there's this amazing video of BMW that's basically taught one of its self-driving cars to drift around a track, which is right. just <laughs> the coolest friggin' thing. But yes. you, you, you think about the, the way they're taking that technology and they are using that technology in quote unquote, a sustaining way. It's to get more money out of their best existing customers who, uh, like me, might find something like that really cool. But then you think about a company like Uber, if they have access to that technology, they're not going to use it to try to get more money out of their existing customers as a a checkbox on a BMW order form where you like get the drift (laughs) self-driving option. They're going to use it to take the the existing, the, the, the humans who are driving the cars out to lower their operational cost so they can offer the the, the ride sharing services uh, at a lower cost to try and expand the market. And so that's fundamentally the difference between uh, like disruptive versus sustaining. And that yep. is how the technology alone itself is not enough. It's how it comes to market with the business model. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. So so let's move on to the Facebook question. Mm. Um, do, do you think there's anything to that idea? I mean, like I, I feel like for many years – people in Silicon Valley, because this, this concept of disruptive innovations become sort of so pervasive mm. that a lot of people felt like, okay, now we know how to deal with it. But I, I found very few actual examples of that. But, but the Facebook one has me wondering. Yeah, this is a question that I've been thinking a lot about in the last little while. And, you know, when we first started talking about it, or, or probably when uh, like it, it came to the fore such that you started to have the question and I started to have mm-hmm. the question. I would have said, you know what? Maybe these guys have figured it out. But the last little while, <laughs> I've actually started to come around the other side. Now, this okay. is this is not to say that these companies aren't in an extremely dominant and entrenched position for other reasons, but yeah. I'm not necessarily convinced that they've, they've figured it out. Now, I actually... I want to answer this first by not looking at Facebook, but looking at another big tech company in Silicon Valley, Apple, that's that's actually one of the reasons why I started to change my mind. So Apple... Apple's resurgence back in the early 2000s, it started with the iMac, but they quickly pivoted into music. And the thing mm-hmm. that really accelerated their growth was the iPod. And uh, like this notion of offering people music that they could carry around, making it super easy for people to sync the, the music, like rip the music onto their computers. I mean, it feels like ages ago right. now that you are ripping CDs, but ripping CDs onto your computer and then uh, an interface where it was super easy to transfer transfer your music onto this device like it was revolutionary and it, it really accelerated their growth and i think it now don't quote me on this but it got to <laughs> i think it got to be You're like being a, recorded 
footage. You oh, know? Well, it, yeah, that's true. I, so forgive me if I've got the numbers wrong, but I looked into this. It was like a $10 billion a year business. It was, right. it, it, and that number might be wrong. Let's just say it was a huge business. And what was fascinating was to my mind that they came out with the iPhone Yep. and the iPhone completely cannibalized their business. And yep. I looked at this and I thought, wow, these tech companies have got it figured out. They have finally <laughs> figured out how to disrupt themselves. And I don't want to play down the, um, the way in which they'd structured their organization such that they made the right decision because there are plenty of instances of organizations where you have a uh, especially if you have a divisional organizational structure where you have the organization divided up into product lines as opposed to functional lines like engineering, marketing, whatever. Apple was able to eat its baby yeah. and, and release the iPhone and not even skip a beat. Like it looked like it, it, they made it look easy. Um, and in a, in a traditional divisional organization, you would have people whose jobs depended on the success of the iPod who would be out to like hamstring the iPhone and maybe it wouldn't be able to play music or there'd be other limitations to try and support this other product line. And as an outsider, as a consumer, you would just be like, this is so frustrating. This doesn't make sense. Apple did none of that. They ate it. They killed the iPod business. The iPhone went on to be the success it did. And uh, it, it, it was mighty impressive how they did it. And I was like, maybe these guys have got it figured out. And then recently, I like watching them and admittedly, Apple's a little different. And uh, from when it was back when uh, the iPhone completely cannibalized the iPod. Yeah. Um, for one, the, 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 the legendary founder, Steve Jobs, is no longer at the helm. And you have an operations guy in Tim Cook who's leading it. So that might be part of this. But just watching what's happening as the iPhone is starting to saturate the market um, and how the company is behaving and this shift to quote unquote a services narrative um, the yeah. way that they are increasing the prices of the iPhones the way that they like in the most recent quarter they stopped reporting the unit sales of the iPhones <laughs> and just started doing total revenue instead like this is I was like this is very curious behavior <laughs> and, and it's like completely consistent with a company that's taking its existing product and moving it up market um, yeah. And that is the behavior of a company that is it, not necessarily being disrupted, but it's a great way to set yourself up for being disrupted. And I was like, yeah. this is the company that I thought had it all figured out. And the way <laughs> that they're charging more for their services revenue, the... Um, and the flow-on effects from that, like uh, it, it, it privileges Apple services over other third-party services that may provide a better user experience. It, um, like there are apps and app store apps, uh, people in the app store that are like you can't buy Amazon books off the Amazon app. You can't subscribe to various things because Apple insists on taking a thirty percent cut because they have this services narrative. And the thing is, they've become addicted to the revenue that that provides and they need to deliver those numbers. And for them to undo those decisions, uh, even if it was in cause of a better user experience, um, it, it makes it harder and harder for them to do it. And I was like, wow, I thought this company had figured it out, figured out like, like it could defy gravity. And 
it's it's clear to me in watching the way that they're behaving now as the the growth starts to dry up and the way that they're behaving and i'm not to say that it's the wrong answer but right. it is an answer that that is maximizing revenue and that is the thing that often sets a company up for disruption <laughs> it's interesting that you say that because as you were explaining that it made me think of which i hadn't really thought of before in this context the example that i used to use um, years ago, when, when when the Innovator's Dilemma first came out, the example that I would use of, of a company that seemed to have gotten it right was Intel. Mm. Um, mm. Back in the, mm. you know, much earlier when they had left the memory business and decided to focus on processors. And it was a, an Andy Grove decision that was very much along the lines of, of recognizing uh, disruptive innovation and basically saying we could continue to stay uh, and, and sort of do sustaining innovation in the memory space, but you know the real market is is to focus on processors and to become the you know sort of the the dominant mm. player and 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 they did that and yet you know that didn't uh, that didn't cause them not to be taken by surprise when future markets came out. I mean the mobile phone market, right? I mean Intel was sort of caught flat-footed on that certainly. Um, and, and other things too. So there is there is this question, which is like you might prevent a disruption, uh, or you might disrupt yourself um, once or twice. But can you continue to do it? Yeah. Uh, so I would I would add a layer to that, and like that example that your the Intel example is a great one. The, the if you look into the decision making process around Intel for the iPhone and whether it's because Apple went to them and said, guys, can you make this chip? And Intel's like, mm, you're pushing us too hard on price. You're pushing us too hard on margin. It, right. it's, it's this question of they look at it and it like looks like a, a crappy deal. They don't see they don't see the potential of the market from the perspective of the volume that it could that it could take all they see is like well it's going to be a large capital cost for us to do it and the margins are crap so so no we're not going to do it and in retrospect that's like if intel had said yes to that it would be in a very different position right now and yeah it, it, it's the same thing with that apple iphone ipod discussion like it's easy to like in retrospect it's so still to give apple credit cannibalizing a very profitable very big product line is no easy feat for a company yep. that being said the iphone was more expensive and it was better margin and yep. It's easier, not easy, but easier <laughs> to say yes to doing that when that's the case. It's like, oh, yep. well, we lose this, but we gain this other thing in reverse. Where it starts to get hard is when you are losing margin and the market doesn't look as big and you're threatening your existing core. And that's the, that's the classic case of like looking at how blockbuster saw netflix it's like yeah. they had these massive margins these stores all around the country and netflix looks like this this bug on the bottom of their shoe where it's like <laughs> the margins are less than half the it's it's a tiny business you can go invest in this but it's like kind of giving blessing to this competitor um and you either get it right and then 
like like and then you lose all your existing stores or you get it wrong and uh you know you've wasted all this money and look like an idiot and you might still get knocked off by this young upstart competitor and so the natural inclination is just to stick your head in the sand because you don't like the you don't like any of the options of that seem to lie down the end of making the investment decision so you make the decision not to invest thinking you can just continue on your merry way of course like you can't continue on your merry way this company will figure it out and swallow you up and that's exactly what netflix did to blockbuster yeah yeah all right Mm. so now can we get around to facebook (laughs) so so yeah totally and so the reason that i wanted to tell the apple story is it feels to me like the what facebook did with instagram and whatsapp is more akin to what apple did with the iphone and ipod like these businesses are threatening but they are threatening on the same plane of competition that facebook was already in existence it's like you think about an advertiser putting ads on facebook or instagram um these are basically substitutable products and and from facebook's perspective having instagram in its family is it, 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 it's a it's a sustaining innovation it lets it make more money the exact same way it already makes money and mm. so i don't know and, and whatsapp's slightly different i don't like that they're trying to figure out monetization with feeds and all this other stuff with WhatsApp. I don't know that it's really the case that any of these companies have truly yet faced a disruptive innovation to figure out whether it is the case that when they see one, they're going to be able to face it head on. Everyone says, oh, I mean, and like to credit to Facebook, the Instagram acquisition was inspired and you're exactly right. At the time, people like they're paying how much for this photo sharing app? And in retrospect, like look at where all Facebook's growth coming from, look at where its user engagement is coming from. But it's not, it's not disruptive it, it, it doesn't feel disruptive. It just feels like, a, like instead of using, uh, instead of using Mac, you're using uh, uh, Windows or something right. like that. It's like a sub- substitutable product. The profit model's the same. The ads are basically you drop in one or you drop in the other. Like it, it, it doesn't feel disruptive. So I guess my my the place to where my thinking has evolved on Facebook is. I don't know that they've really had an opportunity to face a disruptive threat yet. So I guess we'll see. I would also add that given the the <laughs> the, the siege that's going on on Facebook right now, <laughs> you are you you as a leader are not well positioned in order to meet the challenge of a disruptive threat. Like yeah. feeling like you're under attack from all angles. Now, again, I think I prefaced this whole conversation not to say that these guys aren't in a very solid position. Like there are, uh, I mean, my good friend and podcast co-host Ben Thompson talks about aggregation theory and how when you aggregate these consumers, uh, the suppliers of content commoditize in and like this is the place to go. Like the, the network effects that are attached in these businesses are very strong and are going to be very difficult to overcome. Um, he, I think, would say that this is this time it is different in terms of uh, the ability for someone to come in and challenge that. Um, 
Uh, I remember having the same conversation with folks about Windows thinking, gosh, like they've got this operating system where they have all these application developers on one side um, and uh, like how does anyone come along and challenge that? And then the phones came along right. and, and, and away we went. Now, Ben, I'm sure, would still push back on me and say this is fundamentally <laughs> different. Supply, like marginal costs have dropped to zero. So distribution has cost to drop to zero. It's very hard to... Um, it's very hard to see an angle through which this uh, this all gets undone. And then I, I would, I, I mean, I'm literally, I've been podcasting <laughs> with him for so long that I'm mounting his argument. And I would say, yeah, but like the users, people are starting to not trust Facebook. And the, the uh, like so much of Facebook's competitive, competitive advantage is derived from the fact that people are, put themselves on there and they look at it and they use it and they engage with it and they make themselves, they subject themselves to ads and give Facebook more data. But if people start to, to lack trust around that, if they start to think that Facebook's not good for you and I, I that's, that's, a, that's, that's something that I believe. I don't think it's really good for you. And if that narrative starts to take root more broadly, if regulators start to look into ways in which it can be like it can be tweaked with, I know, for example, there's a proposal that's coming out of Australia where uh, the uh, like the A the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, is going. One of the preliminary proposals from there looking to digital platforms is that they want a regulator to have oversight of the algorithms and what it displays and how it displays it like you can start to see ways in which it could all come undone but right now it looks like the the way that they have the way that they have like the consumer engagement is is uh, is pretty tied up like i kind of there's no obvious way in which that they're going to get threatened right. does that mean that they're going to be able to resist the disruptor if it comes along i don't know i guess we'll see um folks <laughs> I mean haven't Folks yeah. haven't done too well in the past. Yeah, I mean, I, there's there's a good there's a few good points that you raised in there. Um, one being, you know, I pointed out at the beginning, like oftentimes a truly disruptive innovation is the one that you that almost no one sees coming. Mm. So the fact that you say there's no obvious one, that doesn't mean there's no no yeah, totally. <laughs> dis disruptor out there. The second one, the second point that I think was really good, you know, you pointed out like. The, the ones that, that caught my eye, the Instagram and the WhatsApp, that those really were sort of sustaining innovations, right? I mean, um, and so, you know, what, what, what that got me thinking about is, you know, are there, you know, are there new business models that could create competitive services that don't rely on advertising, um, mm. because really that is, that is Facebook's business, right? So if you could offer similar or, you know, some sort of, segment of the functionality that people like about Facebook without the intrusiveness of an advertising based business model. Um, you know, that, yeah. that would be a challenge I think for Facebook because yeah. I, don't, I don't know that they're set up to deal with that. It, it, it's a, it's a really good point. It's a really good question. The challenge with it is, is that the social networks at least, and the thing that might displace them may not be a social network. Like, let's just put that out there. But the challenge with social networks is like the, the network part of that name. And uh, is it Metcalf's law that talks about um, uh, the, the value of any network is a function of the number of people that are on yep. it? Nice. And I got it right. And and the, the thing is, once you start putting 
uh, cost in front of that, you start uh, you start the process of making it uh, a you introduce friction, and b there are people who are like, oh, I'm just not going to pay this. Like, yeah. it's not worth it. But for that, me. but 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 that that assumes that I'm saying the alternative business yes. model is a paid business model, which right. might not be right. I mean, there could be some other third party that is mm. paying in some form or another. I right? mean, right. And right now, uh, when you say third party, my mind immediately goes to advertiser. And your point is like, maybe there are other models out there. And yeah. I think it's a really good point. I think the value of data is something that's going to become increasingly important. And advertisers right now are the ones that are paying for it. Are there other people that would pay for the access to the data? Like that would be a line of questioning that I would go down in order to try and figure out what a alternative to this might look like. Um, yeah. That would well, be I mean, a place I'd look. I mean, you know, one, one idea that's come up and we discussed this on a, on not you and I, but, but tech, the tech dirt podcast, we had mm. this discussion um, earlier this year um, that, that came up was, and I know this is like, I, I, I almost cringe every time I say it, but it is mm. interesting to think about, which is like these ideas of like token systems or cryptocurrencies mm. where, you know, it's, it's the usage that itself. So people, it's, it's effectively, a, you know, it's an equity kind of, or equity light system um, where, the, the increase in the size of the network increases the value of mm. the tokens themselves. And therefore, you know, if you're, a, a, you know, a shrewd company in some sense, you could build a network where, you know, you retain some of the, um, you know, the, the tokens. And therefore, if you just get a whole bunch of people using it, it sort of pays for itself effectively by the increase in the value of the tokens. Oh, I mean, and, and I mean, it's interesting for another reason other than that, which is like we talked about Metcalfe's law and mm -hmm. the fact that um, it's, it's like the first few users don't necessarily have much value because there aren't many other users on the network. Yeah. The beautiful thing about like you think about uh, uh, cryptocurrency is it's it's effectively really like i mean using bitcoin as an example it's really easy to mine the initial bitcoin but as you get more and more people using it it becomes harder and harder that there's some equivalent for that for the users where yeah. as as because the value increases like the ease of which you get it, but uh, the value increases as more people use it. That gives initial users an incentive to sign up. So, like it, it can counterbalance. It, I, I find uh, the, the tokens and crypto interesting from a social network perspective because it can counteract somewhat Metcalf's law and give um, initial users a big incentive to sign up at at the at the outset. And that's one of the biggest problems starting. Uh, any any network is getting yeah. those initial folks to sign up because the value in the network comes later on when you have all the people, but then it's a chicken or egg problem. How do you get the initial set of people? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if this would work and I know some people have sort of tried stuff that, that hasn't really functioned, but it, it doesn't seem like it would be impossible to create, uh, you know, and again, you're right, it doesn't need to be a social network, but something that, that effectively undermines Facebook's reason for being if you approach it from a totally different way in which you know it, it wouldn't be based on advertising or you know or even necessarily collecting all your data i mean you could do different things um 
you know, there's obviously a lot of talk now, and I've talked about this separately also about, you know, an idea of, you know, giving more control of the data out to the end users and they can choose to share, but, but they have the ultimate con control and can cut you off mm. from that data at, at different points where, you know, if you used a, a token-based system, that, that could be something different. And I'm not sure how Facebook um, would react to that. Yeah, I, I mean, like the the user data control thing is something that I think regulators are going to start down the path of, and it's going to yeah. make it's going to make the advertising based social networks lives much more difficult. I think there's there's another aspect to this though, in terms of the if there is one organization which I think, at least with its present CEO at the helm, will behave in a way that is um, that is able to resist the innovator's dilemma just by his sheer intellect, sheer force of will, and the extent to which he has respect of the markets. It's Jeff Bezos up in Seattle <laughs> and Amazon. Like yeah. The way he thinks about business is just absolutely phenomenal. The way that I could see him structuring organizations in order to um, and, and keeping them separate and like being okay with like him eating, like him eating profitable businesses up in the, in the benefit, just because he has such a long-term time horizon. And I feel yeah. like disruption is often, it's, it's, I think one of the, uh, one of the catalytic factors for disruption is that you have people on a short-term time horizon, like you have Blockbuster thinking about its ne its results next quarter as opposed to its results five years from now. Yeah. And Bezos has just demonstrated an ability to uh, like execute in in the now incredibly well, but keep his eyes on the horizon in in, in a way that is just. Uh, we'll, we'll go down in legend. So if there is one organization, at least as it stands right now, that I think would be able to figure out a way of resisting it, it's him just because I have so much respect for him. I know he's like so well versed in the in the dilemma like he makes yeah. his management team read it it's like it's like a big thing for him if anyone's going to figure it out who's in charge of one of these big platform organizations tech companies right now i bet it's him yeah yeah that's actually a really good point um and i and i agree i mean i his his ability to take the long-term view and not just take the long-term view but to 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 tell wall street specifically like effectively screw you i'm taking the long-term view i don't mm. care about the quarterly results um i think does make a big difference the one thing i'm wondering is like has amazon ever really faced a, a sort of disruptive innovator um it's a good question to my mind probably not yet i mean yeah. i i think that the retail business is becoming dominant enough that like uh, on one hand, it feels like it's impregnable. On an, uh, on the other hand, like when it feels impregnable, that's when the things start taking root. And I, I've read some interesting commentary about the way that the search results work in certain categories and the way that it's uh, the algorithm works in terms of putting things up higher in the search results that are financially advantageous to Amazon and like confusing to the user. I, like I, I can't remember the exact post, but then I, I remember reading about it and thinking, oh, interesting. Like this is the kind of behavior where they're optimizing in terms of like what gets them the most revenue, which puts 
uh, which puts them in a more precarious position as opposed to what Amazon's historically done, which is always prioritize the user experience. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I don't, I don't think, uh, so I, to answer your question, nothing immediately comes to mind. Um, the thing about it is though, is what you said, his, uh, Bezos's ability to just tell the mark, just flip the bird to the markets, like the ability to, uh, resist that, resist that pressure and say, I know I'm giving up revenue in the short run right now, but there's this long-term view that's really important. That's the reason why I'm doing it. It's the ability to do that that's super important. And so, I mean, and another way of looking at this, disruption is often like a time horizon problem. If if people had their, the time horizon correct, they would be much more resistant to it. But there's right. all this financial and, and um, market pressure to think about, oh, you're running a marathon, but all people seem to care about is the lap time of the last lap you did as opposed to realizing you're, you're running a hundred lap, a thousand lap, a million <laughs> lap race. And, um, it, and the, all, all the financial models get drawn on, okay, how did they do last quarter? Yeah, and and it's it's not the right way of looking at the world, and it sets a perver- it it, set, it it encourages perverse behavior that leaves companies exposed. And again, like your point, Bezos just has this ability to like resist it, and that's why I think having a founder at the helm is also another reason why um, yeah. companies are more likely to resist it, simply because um, the markets give more credence to someone who's created. Um, the company and, and is viewed as a visionary and it's almost like they give them this degree of trust. And that's one of the things that I think uh, jobs brought many things to the table at Apple, but that's one of the things that I think he bought. It's like, well, he's friggin' Steve jobs. I'm not going <laughs> to argue with him. I, uh, Tim cook doesn't have that. And Tim cook is r- running the company in a much more, uh, l- like a, a quote unquote standard way. And I think he's uh, like, I don't think he has the ability to resist the pressures the same way that someone like Steve jobs had. Yeah. A- another point going back to Amazon, as I was thinking about it, um, is you know and to some extent they did take a step towards disrupting at least some of their market when they did the whole Kindle thing right where they sort of stepped in and said hey if ebooks do become a thing that would become disruptive to our book business which is where we started not not necessarily you know still the major component of their business and they you know really invented the ebook market mm. um you know, which had really suffered before they stepped in. So that was, is, I don't know if that cannibalized their market. Uh, um, that's a good point. I, I, and I, I think the question becomes like digging inside the business of those two, like yeah. from the perspective of Amazon, did one look more attractive than the other? And yeah. here would be the test. If, if the ebook business looked unattractive from a margin and an absolute size perspective in the short run, and they went and did it anyway, that would be an indicator of like, okay, they are actually doing the hard work of disrupting themselves as opposed to, oh, they've found a version of the same market that they're going to cannibalize, but yeah. it has more attractive margins. Because uh, again, I'm not going to say any idiot can do that, but it's yeah. an order of magnitude easier. Yeah, no, no, I think that's a, that's a fair point, and and I don't know the answer to that. I mean, Neither obviously, do I. you know, when they launched, right, they had this this set price of of nine ninety nine per book for every book, um, and so you know, and the margin on digital good is you know basically all of it, um, 
you know, what, but they had a cost to the publisher, and right. I, I don't know what the publishers got in terms of digital books or what was negotiated. So right. that would be the cost basis on which you'd need yep. to look. And at. And then it. there's there's the whole hardware aspect to it mm-hmm. too, which you know that was an entirely different type of business for mm-hmm. them, and I don't, I don't know how well that was for them financially. There's a lot of questions, but mm-hmm. it is interesting that Amazon, though, you know, they they have sort of you know, tried to go into a bunch of other businesses, right? I mean, they had the whole, their whole attempt at a search engine. They had their whole attempt at their, their own, you know, phone and, and tablet, which I, I, I think well, maybe the phone was exist. A, the, the tablet exists. And I think the right. tablet's like a, a low end way of consuming Amazon services. The phone was an abject disaster. Yeah. And I think that like, it's interest. I actually think that's good. Like there's a degree of humility <laughs> yes. that, that comes with like, because Bezos was heavily involved with this. This yeah. was his pet project for an extended period of time. And like he was the one that launched it and it was like a big fanfare and the thing flopped. But yeah. at the same time that was being developed, they also developed the uh, Alexa and the the Echo. Um, yep. And th- that thing, it, that that's like an example, an interesting example of how the, the company that would have been, you'd think would have been well-placed to do that was actually Apple. Apple. Like they were dominant right. it, with a whole bunch of the hardware and, and software that was required to make that work. But this interesting phenomenon where uh, a company that is dominant in one paradigm rarely is dominant in a successive one. And this is, I mean, another interesting way of answering your question around disruption and whether these companies are resistant to it. Like the, the, it's it's crazy, but like the six the the result of being successful in one paradigm is such that you can't escape seeing the world through the lens of that paradigm. <laughs> yep. And the example that I often give is Microsoft. Like I wrote something about this, and I'll I'll send it to you if you have show notes because I think yep. it's worth a read. Um, they uh, I mean, obviously with Windows were absolutely dominant, and uh, they were actually in terms of companies that were early to mobile they were out there and they were leading for a long time with windows mobile but the thing was windows was the thing that made microsoft a big part of what made microsoft so successful and that's the lens through which they saw everything and their approach to mobile was to take this thing that had made them successful in the past and just make a smaller version so from a user experience perspective they just jammed big windows and made it little windows from the perspective of the business model, they ended up just trying to replicate what had worked on for desktops and laptops. It's just like, okay, uh, device manufacturers, here's the specs, you guys go make this and here's the operating system and you pay us for the operating system and then pass the end cost on to the consumer. And the interesting thing is like you look at the two dominant platforms in mobile and neither of them have that business model. And it was Apple who had their backside handed to them in the PC wars that was able to step outside the paradigm of the the PC and the PC operating system and reimagine what an appropriate experience would be like um, in terms of the phone. And they were also integrated from a hardware and software perspective, which given they were reimagining the experience is really important because they had control over, like if they needed to change something like, for example, the touchscreen and the way that all 
worked because the hardware and the software were all under one roof that there were no interdependencies that needed to be contracted on whereas with microsoft they kind of it was much slower and they're like okay this is the way it's going to work and then they ship the os and then device manufacturers who were building the hardware had to work within those constraints yeah. if they wanted to change it it became much slower for for them that feedback loop wasn't as tight and like it was slower and etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's like that's another thing working against these social networks like they become dominant in one paradigm and then they can't see outside that paradigm yeah uh, and i would say that's the reason part of the reason why amazon completely failed inside the phone like coming and attacking head-on uh, a, a competitor that is that is dominant inside a paradigm in their paradigm is never a fight that you're likely to win <laughs> but like right. taking taking on a new paradigm where you failed in the previous one and you had a completely blank slate and amazon got whooped with phones but then they're like well we don't need to create a mini phone for the home we need to create something that's completely completely appropriate for the home we're going to start from a blank slate and that's what happened with um like echo like yeah and I, I need to keep i need to be careful saying that because the one on my desk has just woken up <laughs> and, is, and is looking at me <laughs> that's great <laughs> um yeah no that's that's uh, that's a really interesting i think that's a good way of looking at it i i um i i, I was debating whether or not to tell this story but i'll talk because i'll, I'll mm. say that the the statute of limitations on this is probably expired but um after right after i graduated business school which is now 20 years ago um a friend of mine in a you know, a, a classmate of mine from business school who went to Microsoft mm. was working on their mobile strategy and, um, you know, and gave me a call because he's like, you know, you're, Mike, you're into these techie things. <laughs> Let's talk about mobile uh, strategy. And and the one thing I remember from that conversation, I think we spoke for, you know, maybe half an hour or whatever. But the one thing I remember was, you know, I just point out like, you know, the approach that, that Windows has to operating systems on a desktop or a laptop is, is one thing. So that, and I was like, I don't see how that works on the mobile phone. And the one example that I gave him that he seemed really surprised by or just sort of like made him think was I was like, you know, every time, you know, uh, every time you boot up a Windows computer, it takes forever. Like nobody wants that for their phone. They want a mm. phone that, that turns on, you know, quickly. And he was like, oh, yeah. And it was just like this this idea that like, you know, you, I think you're right that, that Microsoft just went into the phone space and they went in early, very early, um, but with the exact same mindset of, you know, this is how the OS system you know the 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 whole paradigm and our entire business is based on for for computers desktop computers mm. um and therefore it must work that way in phones mm. also mm -hmm. um that's yeah. exactly it right like yeah. they just they they so it's this crazy thing where they're so successful that all they can think of doing is just taking what what's worked in the past and just jamming it into the future and it, it rarely works you've got to say you've got to let go of everything that's happened and come at it with a beginner's mind but from an organizational perspective that is incredibly hard to do when everything that's made you successful and all the reasons why people want to go work there is actually the thing that's going to cause you to fail in the future yeah 
Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> One more point or, or reminiscence, I guess, along along those lines, uh, and and talking about Jeff Bezos. Um, one of the very first times I gave a, a presentation at a tech conference was, I think, in 2003. I could be wrong in the exact year, but somewhere around there, 2002, 2003. And I gave a talk at an O'Reilly conference um, where I think the title was better than the talk. I don't think I was uh, as as experienced a public speaker as I am now. Not that I'm necessarily a good public speaker now. but um, And the title was, uh, If You Have the Killer App, How Come I'm Not Dead Yet? Um, <laughs> I, I still think it was a pretty good title. It's good. I like it. Uh, and but it was talking about some of these ideas, and that like you know all these people were sort of claiming certain things were were killer apps, and I was pointing out that you know they were just sort of you know taking the old paradigm and moving them to the new. Um, and so, but the the interesting thing about that was about I would guess about halfway through that presentation, I had you know slides, and I was going through it, and. Uh, I, I suddenly noticed that the person sitting front row center, uh, right in front of me, who I hadn't recognized or noticed until about halfway through the presentation, was Jeff Bezos. Oh, wow. Um, and it it caused me to stop <laughs> for a second and then, you know, go on. But, like, just in the back of my head, I kept saying, like, that's Jeff Bezos, that's Jeff Bezos, <laughs> that's Jeff Bezos, which probably made it an even worse presentation than it already already was. But it is interesting that, you know, so clearly he was at least thinking about some of these things, you know, uh, way back when. And, and, you know, and then he's gone on to do some, some interesting things. And I think the the Alexa or Echo, whatever you want to call it, or you don't have to say anything so you don't wake yours up. <laughs> um, you know, it, it is sort of interesting blank slate thinking of, of, you know, inventing the new paradigm as opposed to, um, you know. Yeah. Mike, Mike Masnick, allow me to tease you. Like, I wonder <laughs> if, if your presentation was part of the reason the Fire Phone didn't do as well. As it <laughs> 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 On the flip side, your defense of saying it's the look at the Alexa, not the phone is also a pretty good one. So yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can argue it both ways. Yeah, either way. I'm sure my, my uh, talk had absolutely no uh, bearing on Jeff Bezos whatsoever. And I'm sure he probably forgot about it within five minutes of it ending. Um, but... Uh, Anyways, it, it is an interesting topic, and I mean, it is you know the 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 concept of the innovator's dilemma and disruptive innovation is so core and so central to Silicon Valley these days. And yet, mm. you know, as I said, I think a lot of people misunderstand it, and even I misunderstand it sometimes too. And I've been thinking about it all this time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it comes down to it like the reason that it's so it's the, the the theory has stood up so well is it is it really gets at the root of individuals motivations whether they're inside of organizations whether they're customers or they're inside the financial markets and the most insidious thing about it is that even when you understand it and you can see it happening because <laughs> of those individual motivations and the way that the, uh, the system is structured in which players operate even if you know it's happening it doesn't mean you're going to be able to resist it and so yeah. it's going to it, it's going to take something particularly special um, when an organization, even one as successful as some of the social networks that we've talked about, um, faces something like this, whether they're going to be able to stare it down and do the thing that results in their long term success. And it will be interesting to see whether they're able to do it. But I don't think they've faced such an existential threat yet. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I think you convinced me. I think my 
my initial hypothesis may not be may not have held up under scrutiny so this this was a, a very useful conversation for me <laughs> um hopefully for people listening I, this was to, to me this was fascinating it's always fun to talk to you james um and uh and to think about these kinds of uh, uh deep topics on on innovation and what's happening uh and yeah. so uh thanks for for taking the time Oh, of course, mate. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm, I'm, I'm honored that you'd have me back. It was great chatting. Sure. No, absolutely. And we will definitely have you back again at some point. I look point forward in, to it. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, again, this is probably our last podcast of the year. So thanks for everyone for listening all year. And we'll be back uh, early in the new year with some new podcasts. All right. Thanks again. Bye. Cheers. Stand up to them, someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the.